We're going to turn now to the highlight of any inauguration, and that's the speech. In March of 1865, Abraham Lincoln delivered what is easily the most famous inaugural speech in U.S. history. He had been reelected a few months earlier, and the Civil War was just about over. Americans were wondering what would come next. How would the rebel states rejoin the Union? What would become of former slaves? People assumed Lincoln would answer these tricky questions. They expected a blueprint for the next four years, something like Lincoln's first inaugural. But that's not what they got. Fellow countrymen, at this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at first. Well, he starts by, in some ways, telling us what he's not going to say. This is George Rabel, an historian at the University of Alabama. Uh, He says nothing about his administration. He says very little about the war. Uh, He simply says that the progress of our arms appears to be satisfactory and sort of leaves it at that and then goes on to this uh, meditation on the war's meaning. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago. He said four years ago all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it all sought to avoid it. In other words, both the secessionists and the unionists hope to avoid war. I mean, he's sort of focusing on what northerners and southerners had in common. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. And the war came, which is a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> sentence. It is wonderful. In some ways, it's a way to avoid casting blame on anyone. It's like the war just sort of came and no one was responsible. And it suggests uh, agency, not necessarily of humans, that it's somehow maybe providential. It does suggest providential agency, and of course that's exactly what he's going to talk about in the rest of the inaugural. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Lincoln never uh, asserts that God is on the side of the Union, uh, at least in the unequivocal way that many Northerners would have done, which is why this speech is, is very unusual. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war. He still says about the war, he gives to both the North and South. Lincoln lets no one off the hook. So he talks about slavery, and he considers it not a Southern institution, but a national institution. And this war will continue until that sin has been atoned for. Fondly, do we hope. Fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I mean, that's... That's very tough preaching. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for... If you think of that image of binding up wounds, those wounds can still take a long time to heal, and they may heal only imperfectly. 
and if you turn to the soldiers, when you think of all the men who were grievously wounded during the war, those wounds healed, but a lot of them didn't heal completely. And that might also be true of the, of the nation as well. To do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. This is a somber time even for the victors. Yeah. Given the carnage and destruction involved, it, uh, it had to be. And the contemporary reaction to this inaugural was much more muted than the reaction to the first inaugural. But George, uh, Lincoln understood that he would not get an enthusiastic response, but that it might grow on people. It, he did. There's a wonderful letter uh, he wrote to a New York politician with that delightful name Thurlow Weed. Uh, who congratulated him on the address, and he wrote back to Weed, he thanked him, he said, I expect it to wear as well or perhaps better than anything I have produced, but I believe it is not immediately popular. Men are not flattered by being shown that there has been a difference of purpose between the Almighty and them, but to deny it, however, in this case, is to deny that there is a God governing the world. And I think Lincoln was right. I mean, it was not immediately popular. Mm -hmm. Lincoln is doing something that presidents don't do. He is saying, here are some difficult questions, and I don't necessarily have the answers. Right. And that's not what we expect of political leaders uh, in our day, and I, I don't think in Lincoln's day either. <laughs> Walking us through Lincoln's second inaugural was George Rabel, an historian at the University of Alabama. 